Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can come in your name and hear from your word. Lord, we thank you that you have given it to us, that you have preserved it over the centuries so that it is here before us this morning and even in our own tongue. We thank you for Bible translators that have taken that time and effort to put your word into a format so that we can understand what you, the living God, have said. Lord, we pray that you may be with this this me this morning so that I am able to declare clearly what it is that your word has said. And Lord, we pray that it may indeed be helpful for us as we seek to honour you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I think many of you know that I indeed like my food. I just got back from a week's annual leave and a big part of my week's holiday was eating out and one of our favourite restaurants we got to visit while I was on leave and that is a Brazilian restaurant here in Leichhardt uh, which does all-you-can-eat meat. And uh, even the children got stuck into it this time. They come around with these big skewers and ask you what types of meat you want and they shave off a piece of meat for you to eat and, uh, and they just keep coming back and back and you just keep eating more and more meat. And a little bit of halloumi cheese is something that I've started to discover from this Brazilian restaurant as well. It's something that I really like. Going without food is then a bit of a horrible thought to me. It is something that I find to be uh, a distraction for me, something that I don't like the idea of, that I could go without food. And that is what we're going to be looking at this morning as we come to this chapter in Ezra, Ezra chapter 10. We're going to be looking at the subject of fasting and what it is to go without food. We've been working our way through this book of Ezra with different interruptions as we've been going through, and we've come to this point now as Ezra is continuing to respond to the problem of intermarriage that has taken place between Israelites and foreign people around the Israelite community. How do we get to this point? Uh, what is the overarching uh, idea, uh, the, the storyline of the scriptures that has brought us to Ezra chapter 10? I think I always need to do a bit of a review whenever we look at the Old Testament together because we don't always have it clearly fixed in our minds as to where different books of the Bible in the Old Testament fit into the storyline of God's people. Basically, you start the Bible with Genesis, with God creating the world. Then there's this uh, these two people who are created, who are Adam and Eve. Eventually from them you get this man called Abraham. Abraham has a grandson named Israel. From Israel you get the 12 tribes of Israel from his 12 sons. And eventually they end up in a place called Egypt where a king, King Pharaoh, uh, the king of Egypt, who is also known as Pharaoh, enslaves them. And uh, Israelite is raised up by the name of Moses, who leads the people of Israel out of Egypt to the promised land. And so they're set free from captivity in Egypt and go to the promised land. The promised land is, of course, the land of Canaan, which is where Israel is today. And the Israelites, while they live there, sin an awful lot. And because of their sin, God eventually brings in an Assyrian army, which decimates them, and then a Babylonian army, which decimates them even more. And eventually, uh, they, and most of the Israelites are killed, but a remnant is preserved that is taken to the land of Babylon. They're called, that is called the exile, and the Israelites live there, prosper there, and then a group of them returns to the land of Israel, and they come under the leadership of Ezra, well, there's our first wave that comes, but then another wave comes with Ezra, and that is where uh, we we pick up in the book of Ezra, 
and that happens in chapter 8. They return to the land of Israel and then Ezra in chapter 9 learns about the sin that is being committed of intermarriage that has been going on. And so we've been looking at that. We looked at Ezra's prayer in chapter 9 about the sin of these Israelites and then we've looked at his response to this. We have seen that he reacted quite violently. He tore his hair, he tore his clothes at the result of this news and then he also listened to the words of Shechaniah. Shechaniah speaks up and tells Ezra that uh, that the people have indeed sinned but also that there is hope for Israel. And we see that in verse 2 of Ezra chapter 10. Ezra chapter 10 verse 2, page 470 of the Black Church Bibles. It says, Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the people around us, but in spite of this there is still hope for Israel. And he then encourages Ezra to put the people under oath that they would do what is right now instead of what is wrong. And that's what we looked at last time I spoke, that Ezra should rise up and take the matter in hand and know that he's got the people supporting him, he should have courage and put the people under oath. And so that's where we pick up the storyline today. In verse 5 we see Ezra's further response to this news that the people have married people of different religions, of foreign nations. And we see that Ezra rises up and does what Shechaniah said. We read that in verse 5. So Ezra rose up and put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under oath to do what had been suggested and they took the oath. So Shechaniah suggested that people take an oath and then Ezra rises up and puts the people under oath. And then Ezra does something interesting. And that is what we're going to be looking at today. What is it that Ezra did? Well, we read that he withdraws from before the house of God in verse 6 and goes to the room of Jehoahanan, son of Eliashib, and while he was there he ate no food and drank no water because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. And so that brings me to my first main point this morning. If you want to follow my main points, they're listed on the back of the church bulletin. My first is that Ezra fasted. Ezra fasted. What sort of fast did Ezra uh, do? Because we can fast from all kinds of things. We can fast from chocolate. You can fast from technology. You can fast from all kinds of things. You can fast from certain types of food and at certain times. What sort of fast does Ezra go through? Well, he undertakes a fast that we would describe, it's usually termed as an absolute fast, where he fasts from all food and drink. And we see that in verse 6. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the room of Jehoahanan, son of Eliashib, and while he was there he ate no food and drank no water. Drank no water. This is an absolute fast. It's not as though he's picked on one type of food. It's not as though he's picked on all food that he wouldn't eat. He's also rejected all water at this time, which is quite an unusual fast that you would also remove water at this time. Fasts are quite common in the Old Testament. There are biblical instructions about fasting. But absolute fasts, without water as well as without food, is quite unusual. And so this morning it is important for us to consider why is it that Ezra at this time undertakes a fast and a fast that is an absolute fast. Not just no food, not just no certain types of food, 
but food and also water. Why would he go without food and water at this time? And that brings me to my second main point this morning. My second main point is that Ezra fasted when he mourned over unfaithfulness. Ezra fasted when he mourned over unfaithfulness. Why did Ezra go without food and water? Because he's mourning over unfaithfulness. What does that mean? Well, it means that firstly, Ezra knew how serious this sin of intermarriage was. He saw sin for what it really was. And that sin made him, I believe, physically sick, which is why it was easy for him, I would say, to go without food and water. When we consider that, when we consider things that are evil, we often feel sick and we don't consider eating at that time. I think a good example of this today would be horror movies. Why do most Christians not watch horror movies? Because it's a very graphic display of evil. I used to watch them and I must admit that they do, they make me feel sick at times. And so it's very hard, I think. I, I wonder what the sales are like at cinemas of popcorn for horror movies. Because do you really want to be munching on popcorn, eating chocolate, drinking soft drink whilst watching such graphic displays of evil? That's what's in horror movies. It's killing people often in brutal ways. And such graphic displays usually make us feel sick. We don't want to eat. And that is what is happening here with Ezra. As he considers the sin of the people, it makes him feel sick and makes, reduces his appetite to the point that he doesn't, he's not interested in food and he's not interested in water because he sees sin for what it really is. This unfaithfulness of the Israelites is a complete and utter rebellion against God. God has been clear as to what his law is, but the Israelites have disobeyed God's law and rebelled against God. And that is a horrible thing to do. And it's not, it's interesting how the, it is described, uh, Ezra's reaction here, uh, when he's not drinking and not eating is because he continued to mourn. That word mourn is used. When do we mourn? It's when somebody has died, usually, we think consider that mourning. And that is what sin actually is. It's a, a murdering of God. It's a theocide. When you sin against God, it is as though you're striking a sword into the heart of God and saying, I don't want you around. I am the one who rules my life, not you, and I wish you would drop dead. I wish you weren't there to tell me what I should and shouldn't do. And so when we sin, we're saying, I don't want you around. I wish you didn't exist. Or if you do exist, I wish you were dead. And so Ezra is mourning over sin as he realizes what sin really is. Just like when we watch horror movies, we realize what sin really is. We look at the evil there and feel that this is evil being displayed to us and it reduces our appetite. And I think that's what Ezra is doing. He's encouraging that natural response that he has to sin by mourning over it and then not eating or drinking because he realizes the seriousness of it. But I think he's also going without food here as he reflects on the unfaithfulness of the Israelites, not just because it's sin, but also because of the results of sin. He recognizes that punishment could come as a result of this sin. People often will feel that their appetite is reduced as they consider something bad is coming. 
I haven't lived a particularly long life and I haven't been through much suffering, I would say, and bad things happening. But one thing that I do remember as a very significant points in my life is exams at university and at school, and they stress me out a lot. I, going through Bible college, I actually had grey hair coming in, and Jill's my hairdresser, so she noticed quite uh, quickly, but I've lost my grey hair. She's also noticed that. And I do believe that I had grey hair at theological college because I stressed about exams. And if you have ever stressed about exams too, you will know that food is something that you aren't particularly interested in before the exam. You don't want to eat because your stomach's churning as you consider the exam that is coming, the, the bad thing that is on the horizon. And we know this in other circumstances, I'm sure as well, not just with exams, but you can think of other points in your life, I'm sure, where something bad has been potentially coming, and as a result, food is a distant thought for you. And I think that's what's happening with Ezra here as well. He knows that in the past, God has punished his people seriously for the sin of intermarriage. We've seen that as we've looked through these last few chapters, that God's law was clear, don't intermarry. Then when they did intermarry, God brought destruction upon his people. And to the point that only a remnant remained by God's grace. God could have destroyed them all, but by his grace, he left a remnant. He left the exiles. And now Ezra's really upset because there's such a small community, and now they're committing the same sin again, and it looks like God could then destroy them utterly. And he actually says that that uh, in previous verses, in uh, chapter 9, verse 14, he says, Shall we again break your commands and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? He recognises that God could be so angry with them now that he might destroy them utterly. And so I think as Ezra meditates upon this, food and water are simply distractions that he doesn't have time for. He's so concerned about the impending doom that could come for the sin that he goes without food and water. And this fits with other examples of absolute fast in the Old Testament as well. When else do uh, people reported as going without food and water in the Old Testament? Well, one example is Moses in Deuteronomy 9. It says that he went without food and water when he came down and saw the people worshipping the idols that they had made. He was up on Mount Sinai getting the law of God and he comes down and finds the people at sin and God is going to destroy them and Moses fasts without food and water. You can read about it in Deuteronomy 9. Another example is in Esther 4. Esther goes without food and water and encourages the other people to go without food and water because why? The king has given a decree that all the Israelites will be murdered. Impending destruction is coming and so they go without food and water as they fear the punishment that is to come. Another example is in Jonah. When the whole city of Nineveh is said to be destroyed, Jonah goes through the city telling people that Judgment is coming and the city will be destroyed and the people as a result fast. Turn with me to that one example, page 917, uh, which is Jonah chapter 3, page 917 of your Black Church Bibles. Jonah chapter 3, 
And I'll read from verse 4. So Jonah's come out of the belly of the fish and he has now arrived in Nineveh. And then it says in verse 4, Jonah chapter 3, page 917, On the first day Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. Destruction's coming, they declare a fast. What sort of fast did they declare? Verse 6, when the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Doom is coming. And the people in response fast. And not just fast from food, but also from water. And so we see again and again in the Old Testament that people do absolute fasts when they are fearing judgment, when they are fearing destruction, they go without food and water because I think they're so worried about what is to happen. And so in some ways it's easy for them to fast from both food and water because they're so consumed, not with the thought of food and water, but so consumed with their sinfulness and the destruction that will come. So what is the lesson for us today? What can we learn from Ezra chapter 9? Well, that brings me to my third main point this morning. You should also fast. You should also consider fasting. The New Testament hasn't outlawed fasting. Jesus assumes that people will fast. And he does that in his Sermon on the Mount. He speaks about giving to the needy in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, when you give to the needy. And then he also says, when you pray, he assumes that we will give to the needy, and he also assumes that we will pray. And in that same passage, in Matthew chapter 6, he also talks about fasting. He says, when you give to the needy, when you pray, and when you fast, he then gives instructions. And so Jesus assumes we'll fast. His point in the Sermon on the Mount is not to outlaw fasting, or not even, uh, he's not giving us particular uh, encouragement to fast, but he assumes we'll fast, and his point in the Sermon on the Mount is to Tell us how we should fast. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 16, he says, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so there will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. His point is to make sure that you're not simply trying to get reward from others by fasting, but to make sure that you're fasting in a way that you're seeking God's face, not the reward from other people. Also, Jesus doesn't just give us instruction about fasting then and assumes that we'll fast. He also makes a point that God's people will fast at a particular point in time. In Matthew chapter 9, we read Matthew chapter 9, verse 14. It says, Then John's disciples came and asked Jesus, that's John the Baptist's disciples, they asked Jesus, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. Then they will fast. 
Jesus' disciples weren't fasting while Jesus was with them. But he said, one day the bridegroom will be taken, which is himself. And at that time, his disciples will begin to fast, which is now. The bridegroom is taken from us. We do not have Jesus with us now. It is a time for mourning, a time for sadness. Jesus is not with us. And so we should fast at different points in our walk with the Lord because the bridegroom has been taken from us. So then the question is, well, when should we fast? Jesus, of course, is away a lot. He hasn't come back yet in my lifetime. He hasn't come back in your lifetime. When should we fast? Under what circumstances should we fast? Now, if that is a question that you're wanting to know the answer to, I can think of no better place to turn to than uh, the book Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life by Don Whitney. This is an excellent book about how you should live as a Christian, the different disciplines that you should have, and there's a chapter in it on fasting. And he goes through fasting in general and then reasons for fasting. There's a whole chapter dedicated to it. It's about 30 pages long and it has to be one of the most excellent resources I've seen on fasting. There is another book that is also helpful. It's an entire book about fasting and that's by John Piper and that's called A Hunger for God. And so both of these books I'll have available afterwards if you are interested more. The Hunger for God is my copy. This is the church library copy and you can borrow it. So if you're interested in the subject of fasting in general, then this is a book to turn to whether Christians should fast and under what circumstances Christians should fast. But this morning we're considering a particular type of fasting, not a general form of fasting, a particular type which is absolute fasting, going without food and water, which is a rare type of fasting. When should a Christian go without food and water? And that's where I think Ezra gives us the answer. Ezra tells us under what circumstances in particular we should fast without food and water. And so that brings me to my fourth main point this morning. You should fast when mourning over unfaithfulness. You should fast when mourning over unfaithfulness. Now I want to be careful there. I wrote that main point uh, yesterday and this morning I was considering it again. I'm thinking maybe it's a bit too forceful. You should fast when mourning over faithfulness. might want to tweak it a little to say you might fast. Or possibly you should fast when mourning over unfaithfulness. Uh, or sometimes you should fast when mourning over unfaithfulness. Because I want to be clear that this is not a mandate for you as a Christian. Jesus assumes we will fast at certain times. And sometimes it may be that you go without food and water. And that, that doesn't necessarily always happen. But under some circumstances you may. And that's what I want to look at now in my fourth main point. Those times that you may go without food and water. And I think that really would happen most often when you're mourning over unfaithfulness, like Ezra. Why did he fast without food and water? Because he was mourning over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. What does that mean in your life? Well, it might mean that you fast absolutely when you are aware of your serious sin and could be destroyed, that you're aware of your serious sin and could be destroyed. And so that might be when you're converted. Saul, also known as Paul, fasted without food or water at his conversion. We read that previously in Acts chapter 9. Jesus revealed to Paul that he had been persecuting God, Jesus, rather than worshipping God by locking Christians up and persecuting them. And as a result, as Paul saw how serious his sin was, what did he do? We read in Acts 9 verse 9, For three days he was blind and did not eat 
or drink anything. That's not because he couldn't see the food, I'm sure. He couldn't find any food because he was blind, so he didn't eat or drink anything. I'm sure people could have given him food and drink. But he went without food and drink because I, I believe he had seen how serious his sin was. And he couldn't bring him, he, didn't, he wasn't interested in food. Just like we're not interested in food when we see how serious something actually is, when we're consumed by seeing how evil something may be. Now that doesn't mean every conversion must involve absolute fasting or it isn't a real conversion. But it shouldn't surprise you if someone is converted whilst going without food and water. If someone is under serious conviction of sin, then it may well be that food and water are not interesting for them at all. They've realized how serious their sin is and they're simply crying out to God at that time for help. And that's all they're interested in. They're interested in salvation, not food and water. They're not interested in physical things. They're interested in spiritual things so that food and water has become a distant memory for them. And I think this applies to us today even if we are Christians. Sometimes sin is revealed in our lives and we see how serious it actually is. And as a result, food and water is something we're not interested in. And a question that you may need to consider in your life is if you have never responded with deep mourning over sin to the point of loss of appetite, do you really know how serious your sin is? Have you ever considered your sin to the point that food and water wasn't interesting to you? And also, we should not just fast over the fact that sin is so serious. It may be that we're fasting, as we consider the seriousness of sin, about the destruction of ourselves that may come from our sin as well. Remember that that I think Ezra was not just considering how serious the unfaithfulness was, but also the destruction that could come. And that should be for us too as well. As we consider our sin, we also consider the destruction, which is hell itself. And as we consider hell, should that not lead to a loss of appetite? That food is not something on our minds? as we consider that we should be destroyed eternally in hell? And so a question we may ask is, if you have never feared destruction for sin to the point of loss of appetite, have you really understood hell? Have you understood how serious hell is? The thought of hell should sicken you so that food is not on your mind. Going without food and water is a horrible thought to me. I love my food, as I said before, and I love water. I love drinking water at dinner. I don't like drinking soft drink or tea or coffee with my food. I like to drink lots of water. But it should be that sin and destruction for sin is more important than food and water in my life at different points. And it may not be that just that you fast absolutely over your own sin, but maybe we should fast absolutely over the sin of others. Remember, Ezra here has not committed the sin of unfaithfulness, but the community has, other members of the community. And he is going under an absolute fast here because of the sin of others. 
And so it could be that you should fast absolutely over the sin of others in your community, church, or even suburb. And so a question we may need to ask ourselves is, have you ever feared the destruction of others due to their sin to the loss of appetite for food and water? And if you haven't, have you really understood what it means that others are going to hell all around you? I was talking to someone in our church about the, the unresponsiveness of the people of Des Moines to the gospel, that people aren't interested here. And this person said, maybe we need to fast about the people in Des Moines. Maybe the church needs to consider seriously going without food as they remember the people of Des Moines and the state that they're in the seriousness of their sin and the destruction. And maybe that's what we need to be doing. Have you ever considered the destruction of others so much that it causes you to not think about food and not think about water because you are recognising how serious their predicament actually is? So I think we should consider absolute fasting because of unfaithfulness, when we mourn over unfaithfulness of ourselves and those around us and the destruction, potential destruction of their sin that will come from God. But is there a reason you shouldn't have an absolute fast? Well, this is where I want to put in here that you should not fast absolutely or not absolutely, you should not fast in generally as a good work that earns you salvation. We have to remember that salvation comes from Jesus Christ's death at the cross, not from fasting. A good example from the scriptures that teaches us this truth is the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. The Pharisee says in his prayer to God, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. He talks about how righteous he is. And yet at the end of that parable, Jesus says that the one who is justified before God is the tax collector who didn't fast twice a week but cried out to God for mercy. That is how you are justified. I think one of the problems with fasting and the reason we don't talk about it much in the Protestant church is because we have reacted so much to often the Roman Catholic teaching about fasting that it does earn part of your salvation. Now, if you do these good works like fasting and giving to the poor and showing up at Mass and different sorts of acts, that helps save you. And so we've swung to the other extreme where we recognise that it's trusting in Jesus Christ that justifies us, that saves us. And so we go without fasting because we see it as a good work that can that people use to save them. But I think we have to recognise that, no, we are saved through Jesus Christ, but fasting should be something that we consider in our lives because it comes with the life that we live as Christians. We fast not to be saved, but because we are saved. As we mourn over our sin and the sins of others, then fasting should be something that does turn up, that food and water is not a priority for us, but a concern for sin and the destruction that comes as a result of sin takes over even our bodily concern for food and water. And so as a Christian, we may fast, but we should always end in rejoicing. We should know that destruction may come for sin, but if we believe in Jesus Christ and that destruction has been removed because Christ was destroyed at the cross in our place, Yes, sin does bring destruction. But we as Christians know this marvellous truth 
that that destruction has been taken by Christ. And so we can say with the psalmist in Psalm 30 verse 5, For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favour lasts a lifetime. Weeping may remain for a night. You might want to substitute fasting there. Fasting may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Rejoicing comes in the morning. Yes, there are times where you may consider absolute fast because you're mourning over your sin, the sin of others, and the destruction that sin brings. But we as Christians know that Jesus has been destroyed on our behalf. And so we have more reason to rejoice than reason to mourn and fast before God. So I want to end this morning by asking a few questions. How important is food to you? When did you last mourn over your unfaithfulness to God? Have you ever mourned over your unfaithfulness so that food and water were far from your mind? Have you ever mourned over the unfaithfulness of someone else you cared about so that food and water became a distant thought? If only I think we cared more about sin, more about the destruction to come, than we do about food and water. Let us come before our God in prayer. Let us speak with him. Heavenly Father, We do thank you for your word and the instruction that it gives. We thank you that it tells us that at times food and water which you have given us, which are good things that we should receive with thankfulness, should actually be lower in our minds than our conception of sin, our, our consideration of sin. Lord, the spiritual matters are more important than physical matters. Lord, we do care for our physical bodies, but we know that in the end we do not live by bread alone, but upon every word that comes from you, the living God. And so, Lord, we pray that as we consider sin at times, food and water may be a distant thought for us. And as we consider the sin of others, may food and water be a distant thought from us as well. But, Lord, we pray that we may also remember to rejoice in the destruction that you have taken on your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that rejoicing does come in the morning for us because we know we are saved through the work of Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.